Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and now we're going to study Matthew chapter 19. We left off right around verse number seven. Um, where we are in Matthew is just a little backstory. Matthew is um, one of the four gospels, obviously. Matthew is an apostle, eyewitness to this stuff that he's writing about. We have come through most of the ministry of Jesus on planet Earth. He's less than a year from the cross at this point. Jesus has been healing and ministering, preaching amazing sermons, as you know. And in these last few chapters, he's been concentrating more on his disciples, not to the exclusion of others, but just with more of a focus on training them because soon he'll be gone. Um, so. To get the context, I'm going to read all uh, the beginning of chapter 19, and then we'll pick it up in verse 7. This is a difficult passage to teach because there's all kinds of different theories about it and supposed um, uh, exclusions or exceptions or um, clauses that aren't in here. And so we have to be careful to let the word of God speak and not speak beyond what it says. It's a section about divorce. Um, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Okay, good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. I see your sign there. Beautiful. All right. Chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these sayings, these, these things, sorry, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. He's been north preaching in galilee which is sort of the hick country up north nazareth and all that area and in the gentile areas above it now he's coming toward jerusalem and toward the cross large crowds followed him and he healed them there he's still doing that verse two verse three here comes the question and they're trying to trap him matthew tells us some pharisees came to him these are the religious jewish leaders to test him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, Jesus replied, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The reason they're asking this question, we said last week, is there was great division in Israel about divorce. There were two schools of thought. Rabbi Shammai was more the conservative one, and, he, and a lot of people believed what he believed, which was you cannot divorce your wife except for uncleanness. That comes right out of Deuteronomy uh, 24 verses one and following um, uncleanness, which would have to do with sexual immorality uh, of some kind. We'll talk more about that in a second. The other view was the liberal view. Rabbi Hillel was very famous guy of his time. And he believed um, that you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason. For example, I read this last week and I'm, we're not exaggerating here. If your wife burned the dinner, went outside with unbound hair, spoke to men in the streets, or spoke disrespectfully about the man's parents, or 
if she was a brawling fighting woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. In other words, she raises her voice. So they're starting to make, is this in the Bible? No. I just want to say that. But most Jews like, especially the men, these liberal, you can divorce your wife for pretty, you know, she burned the toast. You're out, honey. You have to write her a certificate of divorce. Is that biblical? Well, you heard Jesus's answer. We'll talk about it. Um, so they're trying to trap him so that he'll take one side or the other and alienate a bunch of the population, make him unpopular. Um, but God's design, we read in that passage, uh, John MacArthur boils it all down to this. One woman, one man, strong bond, one flesh, a work of God, no divorce. Um, so uh, basically the same formula we just read in verses four to six. Um, so we covered most of that last week. Um, so they're trying to trap him by saying this as we read earlier. Um, I want you to notice that the Jewish population at that time, uh, all the laws were in favor of the men, not the women, unfortunately. And uh, it was uncommon for a woman to divorce her husband. So there weren't, it was far from equal rights. Women were like property then, it's a horrible thing. Um, one rabbi, Rabbi Akiba even said, a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman he liked better or was more beautiful. Can you imagine? So they come asking Jesus these questions. Verse seven is where we'll pick it up. Uh, so Jesus says, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Before we get into verse seven, remember we said last week, marriage, family is the building block of society. Even in non-Christian countries, it's pretty much well-established. In the United States, 50% roughly of all divorces, of all marriages, end in divorce. Um, it is roughly the same percentage in Christian, uh, among Christian marriages as it is among secular marriages, before we feel like we're so much better than they are. So it's a big problem, isn't it? The problem is that two people are getting married. They are making a promise before each other and God, and by extension to their children, if they have them, right, when they come, that they will stay together regardless. It's a strong bond. Marriage is uh, in big trouble in these days. It was in big trouble in those days, as you can see. So they ask the question. So he says, Jesus quotes scripture. He doesn't quote either of the rabbis. Verse seven, why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They misquote scripture here. God never commanded divorce. Malachi says, God, listen, hates divorce. That alone is a good reason to avoid divorce. It's something God hates. We ought to love what God loves, hate what he hates. So they're asking, well, then why, does there, why is there Deuteronomy 24? And it's not a command. It's, a, it's a, uh, uh, a way of dealing with the hard hearts of people. Let's read the rest of that passage, then we'll talk about it. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. 
hard toward each other, hard toward God, hard toward his word, hard, hard hearts. A hard heart in the Old Testament is a picture of somebody that will not listen, will not hear. It's the opposite of fertile ground, a hard heart. Um, but I'm still in verse eight, but this wasn't, it, it was not this way from the beginning. So here comes Jesus on a divorce. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, so let's take that, and then we'll talk about the disciples' objection or question, you might say. Okay, so what's going on here is um, the Jesus is quoting Scripture to say that there is one biblical grounds for divorce, and it is porneia in the Greek, from which we get the word pornography. So it is any sexual sin, adultery, fornication. It could be homosexuality. It could be all kinds of sexual sin. May I say God permitted divorce then? That's a key word. Why is that a key word? Because the higher ground is always, if the man, let's say, committed the adultery, comes back to the wife and says, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I'm willing to go to counseling with you. I'm, I'm repentant of my sin. Please forgive me. The wife can, if she can find it in her heart, in the Holy Spirit, forgive that husband and work on the marriage. Does she have biblical grounds to divorce him? Yes. Um, okay, so Jesus explains it wasn't part of God's original creation. He meant one woman, one man, leave father and mother, cleave to one another, what God's put together. He, the picture of one flesh is really like it's one body. The sexual act uh, illustrates it, but it's more than that. It's a spiritual union, something that God ordains. Okay, so uh, porneia can also cover prostitution and what have you. Um, so there's been a break in the contract, if you will. And so that is the grounds for divorce. What is not grounds for divorce. We fell out of love. We're just incompatible. He's changed. She's changed. He gained weight. She's not a submissive wife. He's not a good leader. He's not meeting my needs. We argue a lot. He's not very good with money. He doesn't earn enough money. He fill in the blank. Are all of those problems that should be worked out? Yes. Are they grounds for divorce? No. You'd be surprised what people cite as ground for divorce. In America, we have in some states, no fault divorce, right? Sort of like what they're asking. Any reason? Any reason. We fell out of love. Forget the promise that you made and what your word is worth. So uh, Jesus is clearing this up. But if I'm honest here, in my heart, I want to move on. <laughs> But it wouldn't be right. And here's why. Because there's all, in some of your minds, I'm sure, all the what ifs. What if Harold is beating, it's Harold again, right? What if Harold is beating his wife and his children? Come on, Joe. What about that? If, there, if that's happening and there's danger, the wife and the children should probably get out of there and go live with her sister or her mom or get out of there, right? That's only logical. I don't think God would expect that person to stay there. Is wife beating grounds for divorce? Is it sexual immorality? No. Therefore, is it grounds for divorce? 
I don't think so. Now, I've heard people say, he was beating me, I moved out, and I realized by beating me, he was showing that he had abandoned me. He had left me emotionally. Maybe. Is that grounds for divorce? Not according to God and Jesus. Don't write me letters. I'm not the one writing this whole message. It's God. Um, there is one other grounds for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to turn there now very quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've done that before, haven't we? Go to 1 Corinthians. So past the four Gospels, fast past Acts and Romans. Um, let's see. And I'm going to skip the early part of the chapter. Verse 4, the wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. Same way the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but also to the wife. There's the one flesh kind of thing. Uh, don't deprive each other and what have you. Okay. Paul mentions, verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. He was able, I'll show you later, it's a gift to stay single so that he could do the ministry, travel around without having to worry about his wife and providing for her. And I have to come home because I feel bad I'm leaving her or take her with her. And she doesn't want to travel. All those reasons. He had that gift, meaning he could do that without lusting and chasing after women while he's going from town to town. Okay. So here's the other grounds, and I'll just tell you what it is, and then we'll read it. The other grounds for divorce is if Harold is a Christian and he's married to Cynthia, who is not a Christian, and she abandons him, or vice versa, the unbelieving spouse abandons a believer, then in that case, you're going to read here that the believer is no, no longer bound. Verse 8. Now I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to stay unmarried. If they can't control themselves, we talked about that, they should marry. Better to marry than to burn with passion. If you struggle with lust, get married, but be careful. Be careful, it's a lifelong commitment. Um, verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, and he ver says in verse 12, if any brother, that's a Christian, has a wife who's not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her, even if she burns the dinner two nights in a row. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife. There's an influence there of a believer in a household. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is they're holy. But here it comes, 15. If the unbeliever leaves, got it? Desertion. Doesn't necessarily say, and there was sexual immorality, but he's, he has split. He moved out. He left the area. Let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And anyway, that's enough of 1 Corinthians. I just wanted you to say that the other grounds for divorce, if you're married to an unbeliever, is if he leaves, then you're not bound in that case. That's a biblical divorce. What he, Jesus doesn't say, but it goes without saying, and yet I'm going to say it, is this. Harold is married to Cynthia. Harold, and they're believers. Harold committed adultery, okay? And he's not repentant. He's not sorry. In fact, he's dating the lady now. Got the picture? Uh, 
Cynthia has grounds to divorce him. If she divorces him, listen, she is free to marry another man. He is not free ever to marry the new girlfriend or anybody else because he committed adultery. So it's not like adultery frees both of them up to marry whoever they want. The innocent party in the divorce, in this case, Cynthia, can go marry somebody else. He cannot. I'm confident in an audience of this size, 35 or so people here, 40 people maybe, and 43 screens, so that's usually about 65 people on Zoom. I'm confident there's somebody that got divorced and it wasn't a biblical reason. I hope not, but I bet I'm right. And don't, don't raise your hand. In any case, what about that? I had an, un, it wasn't, I'm not speaking first person. So-and-so had an unbiblical divorce and now he's married to, you know, Linda. Got the picture? Hmm, he reads this, should I divorce Linda now and go back to my first wife? No, two wrongs don't make a right. God says in the, in the state in which you are when you come to Christ, stay there. Two wrongs don't make a right. Repent in your heart for the divorce that you committed. Divorce is serious, or God wouldn't say he hates it. Okay. But is divorce the unforgivable sin? No. What is the unforgivable sin? Blasphemy of the, very good, of the Holy Spirit. Divorce, though serious, is not any more unforgivable than murder or anything else, stealing, lying, cheating, whatever. So uh, it's very hard to go through every um, situation, um, but we ought to do everything we can to keep marriages together. Why? Number one, because the Bible says so. And number two, because God hates divorce. And number three, because you promised and how much is your word worth? And number four, because what about what it will do to children? Some of you are children of divorced parents, and you know it's a major earthquake in your life in most cases. We have to consider all of that kind of thing. The man has abandoned me emotionally. He cheated on me in his mind, but not really adult. See what I mean? There's so many gray areas, and I think we need to just stick to Scripture here. It's a binding promise that is made before God to the person you're marrying and in front of all the people you know, usually. Um, we talked about forgiveness being the higher ground. And uh, if it's too late and you're already divorced and you can't undivorce because she's remarried, let's say, and you're a man, then repent, ask for forgiveness. God knows and will judge our hearts. Not the unforgivable, unforgivable sin, but it's very, very, very serious. Um, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, marriage is a divine institution. That's another reason. We talked a little bit, not a lot last week, because we're not really talking about marriage. We're talking more about divorce. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husband, you know, all that stuff. The interrelation of a man and a woman who are both imperfect. Then it says, when talking about the man, that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. If we Christians get divorced, it is a mark on Jesus, on God, because we're supposed to be his people. 
It's supposed to be a picture of how Christ, the ultimate bridegroom, loves his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her. Husbands are supposed to do so for their wives. The wife, the church, is supposed to submit to their husband. It is mutual love and working as one. Is it easy? It is not. It takes work. Um, uh, in any case, the Anglo-Saxon word from which we get the word husband. Anybody know where that word comes from? Anglo-Saxon, it comes from the word, and it's one word in Old English, house bond, meaning the husband is supposed to be the, the bond that keeps the household, family, the kids, the wife together. It is the ultimately the responsibility of the man as the leader to make sure no divorce. If you're not positive about marrying so-and-so, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Um, the Bible also talks a lot about not being unequally yoked. When we were in high school, going to Young Life and early college days, you heard the term missionary dating. What's that? I heard you're dating that girl that, yeah, I am. Is she a Christian? Well, no, but I think she'll come around. What are you doing? She might influence you the wrong way. Don't be unequally yoked. Christians ought to marry other Christians. You're already married to an unbeliever. Stay with that unbeliever. They may come to know the Lord because of you. Obviously not because of you, but almost in spite of you, right? But the Holy Spirit working in you. Okay, so now the disciples have a little, a little question here. So remember, verse 9, I tell you, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, porneia, and marries another woman, that man commits adultery. He's breaking up a marriage. Here comes the disciples, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. It's almost humorous, don't you think? Kind of a little bit of an attitude. If it's that strict, what you get the sense of is a majority of people went the liberal way. You can divorce, you know, you don't like her anymore. She doesn't like you anymore. It's all good. God understand. They hear how strict Jesus is teaching, which he's God, right, is. And they say, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. Are they right? And you're going to be surprised to learn. He says, you're right. But only in certain cases when people have the gift of singleness. Um, remember Genesis 2.18, uh, God has created the whole world, created uh, all the animals. Remember, created Adam. Adam named the animals, and he's got dogs and chickens and giraffes and people running around, uh, animals running around, but no other people. God says in Genesis 2.18, do you remember? Prior to that, he had said he saw the, all that he had created, and it was very good. It turns out in Genesis 2.18, God says, oh, is one thing that's not good. It is not good for man to be alone. I need to make 
a helpmeet for him, someone to be his wife, companion. He takes Eve out of his rib, right? Notice not out of his foot so he can trample on her, on her, he can trample on her, not out of his head so she can rule over him. Why the rib side, also close to the heart, right? Now, if you're single and you're hearing it's not good for man to be alone, oh, you're throwing up your hands saying, oh, now he's impugning single people. Listen, it may be that you have that gift and you're just not married yet, or you may have that gift for the rest of your life to be single. Let's look at it. Celibacy, we're going to find out, is a gift. So they say, verse 10, if that's the case, husbands and wives, and you got to stay married, maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word or this saying. Wait, which word? He doesn't mean what he just said about marriage. One woman, one man, cleave, leave. He means what you just said, Peter, James, John, Matthew, somebody, Bartholomew. Not everybody can accept it, but to those to whom it has, only to those to whom it's been given. What's given? Your salary at work is not given. It's earned. Given implies a gift. Some people can go work for Jesus, women or men, and stay celibate and know I have that gift. I'm not going to be tempted by pornography or by sleeping around or prostitution or I'm, I, I'm focused on the Lord. The Apostle Paul was that way. Our Lord Jesus Christ was that way. Some of the apostles were. Peter had a wife and kids, we know. It is a gift for some who can accept it. Um, so in why would it be easier to minister for Jesus if you're unmarried? You have more time on your hands, right? You have a lower overhead. You can go be a traveling evangelist and travel around, and your wife may say, when will you be home, honey? Or I don't want to travel on the road. Paul you know what he went through, shipwrecked and in jail and out of jail and beaten and whipped with rods. And some women wouldn't put up with that. Paul had that gift. By the way, Paul was a Pharisee. It is unlikely that Paul was unmarried. Wait, what are you saying? You got a divorce? No. A lot of scholars think Paul's wife died. Uh, because Pharisees usually, almost always, were married. He may have been part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, almost like the Supreme Court, 71 elders and the high priest, had to be married to be in that. His wife may have died. He didn't remarry. Obviously, two people married. If one dies, the other one is free to marry. That goes without saying. Okay, so... Um, it is less distraction. It is a, a more spiritual position to just focus on God, the ultimate spouse, whether you're a man or a woman, but not all can accept it. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're going to burn with lust, it's better to marry than to keep sinning sexually. Um, now he's going to get into the weeds a little bit, but in a good way. Not every, everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. 4, verse 12, and he's going to talk about eunuchs now, and three different types of eunuchs. Watch. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, 
And there were, are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one can accept, who can accept this should accept it. The word eunuch, a, a eunuch, by the way, is someone who either has been castrated surgically or was born that way without a desire, no sex drive, um, a natural eunuch, or doesn't have the proper equipment down there kind of thing, or born that, born that way, or made that way, or those who chose to be that way, like the apostle Paul. Not everybody can do it. Okay, the word eunuch um, literally means to have care of the bed or to have care of the bedroom. You say, why? Here's why. When there was a king and he had a queen and three beautiful princess daughters, he needs someone to take care of them and protect them. He does not want a normal, hot-blooded male who might be tempted to sleep with the queen or one of the princesses. So they always chose a eunuch to have care of the bed or care of the bedroom. Why? They don't have that desire. They can work with the women and it's just like this. They don't even think about it. A normal man might. And who knows, the queen or the princesses might not be that holy in their behavior and might try to seduce the dude that's protecting them, their bodyguard who drives their carriage or whatever. Much better to have a eunuch do it. If he's born that way, then you're good to go. But sometimes they castrated men to make them that way against their will. They were slaves for whatever reason, prisoners. And the third thing is, he's saying, the third type are eunuchs who are do it voluntarily um, for the service of God. Russell, did you have a question? He's asking about hermaphrodites. Yes, in some way, yes. He's talking more about men than he is women, but yeah, um, absolutely. So um, those who voluntarily serve God, he's saying to them, if you can't do that and you know, then you ought to pray and ask God to bring you a godly wife. Um, obviously, there are marriages where the man and the women were both not believers when they got married, and then she became a believer, and he didn't. All the kinds of complicated situations we talked about before. Um, in Acts chapter 8, there is the story of the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember? Um, yeah, we talked about that. Uh, but the only way would be to do it voluntarily to serve God if you know that you can do that. The one who can accept this, to whom it's been given, verse 11, should do so. If you're not that person, then this isn't talking to you. It's interesting that after a discussion about marriage, especially with this idea of divorce, that the very next story in Matthew is about babies, little children. Luke tells the same story and uses the Greek word for babies, not kids five, seven, three, babies because they are the hapless victims of, in some cases, right, divorce. Let's read it. Verse 13, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. 
But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So it was common to have to bring babies to rabbis, fair Pharisees, um, especially before religious holidays, to have them lay hands on them, a way of blessing them, praying for them. This is not infant baptism. Some of you may have gone to or even go to now churches where they baptize babies. I was raised Catholic. I went to a church where they baptized babies. I was baptized as a baby. I was also baptized at 27 years old, uh, right before I got married. Um, believer's baptism. There are no babies that get baptized in the word of God. It is believer's baptism, meaning they understand, they believe, and then they're baptized. This child doesn't understand. Well, then what's going on here? In some Protestant churches, including this one, we do what's called baby dedication. <clears throat> it does not assure the baby's salvation. It's really more to convict the parents, raise this kid, and the way in which he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's Old Testament. It's also for all of us. I'm not related to him and his kids, but to re recognize that I, as a member of this church, have a responsibility to watch out for that kid and talk to those parents if I see stuff going on that isn't right. Um, so they would bring babies to rabbis for blessings. If you know anything about kids, kids are pretty good judges of character. The kind of man that babies would be held by and little kids would be, would feel comfortable with, that's Jesus. You ever see kids shy away from somebody and you just go, hmm, makes me think when I see that, right? I don't know, maybe they're wrong, but the disciples react badly here. They say, and this is Joe's paraphrase, get these kids out of here, right? They don't have pampers in those days, cloth diapers, no washing machines. Kids may be loud and noisy. Maybe people are lining up. Who brought these kids, strangers, to the kids? It's the parents, isn't it? Okay, grandparents, maybe. I think it's the parents. They so trust Jesus, who is not an official rabbi in Judaism, didn't go to rabbi school, but they so believe in him and trust in him, they bring, would you bless my child? It's a beautiful thing. And it's no coincidence, this comes right after a talk about marriage, because there's more people affected than the two who can't get along because he grew, we grew apart. We're no longer in love. Okay, I, I'm fond of saying love is commanded in the Bible. Both vertically, we're supposed to love God right? It's a command. We're supposed to love one another, not just our spouse, one another. Therefore, I won't do this, I won't take a long time because you've heard me do this before. Love is not an emotion. Can't be, because you can't command an emotion. Go ahead, everybody, be sad. Go ahead. Some of you are laughing. Be sad. Now, you can fake it. And you can't command an emotion. Everybody, be happy. If you're not happy, you could but you're not really happy. Emotions can't be commanded. Therefore, love must not be an emotion. Well, then what is it? It's a verb. It's just something you do. 
Well, I don't feel love toward him. I don't care. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your, ready for this one? Enemies. Uh, that proves it's not an emotion. Who is crazy enough to love their enemies? It's a verb. It's just something you do. God gives you his love, and we shine that love out horizontally that we got vertically. Okay, enough of that. Some of you are falling asleep. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. <laughs> Feels like I'm in military school or something. Okay. Um, it was a Jewish custom to bring um, children to the elders on the eve before the Day of Atonement, for example. Bless them and uh, pray for them. Uh, we already talked about that. Laying on of hands has the idea of bestowing blessing, also sometimes bestowing authority. Um, remember that Jesus said earlier, remember a chapter ago at the beginning of 18, the disciples, to our horror, do you remember, said, which one of us is the greatest? Remember? And the, in Luke's parallel account, we find out they're actually arguing about it. I think it's me. No, it's him. It's him. No, it's you. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. What does Jesus do? He puts a kid in their midst, a little child, a toddler, two, three years old. And he says, basically, my paraphrase, be like this. Humble, dependent, soft-hearted, um, no big ego. Children don't usually have that. They develop it but they don't have it normally. Yes, I know about the terrible twos. Don't write me letters. Okay. Um, so um, Jesus says, verse 14, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. It's great that I can bless them, but there's more. What is it? The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Don't misunderstand that. He doesn't mean this is how you get salvation. Bring your baby for the dedication. Get your baby baptized. Um, what he is saying is, he had said it about a toddler. Now he's saying about a baby. This is a clean slate. This is what we are all supposed to be. We don't come with our prejudices, with our pride, with our attitude, with our own goals. Babies are teachable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to talk right? He's saying, this is how humble you need to be. And parenthetically, you're not being humble saying, get these kids out of here. So Jesus can teach. Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, this is a really important thing for you guys to see. So of such is the kingdom of heaven. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Beautiful. Jesus blesses little kids. Now we come to an interesting character. The parallel accounts are in Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read the Matthew account. When you put all three together, it's clearly the same story in all three. You get other information that does is not in Matthew. Basically, this is the story of the rich young ruler. How many have heard that before? Okay. This guy has it all. Worldly speaking, fleshly, he's got it all. He's rich. He is powerful. He's a ruler. Some think he's the ruler of a synagogue, Jewish ruler. Some think he's just some powerful ruler nearby. In Mark's account, 
it says he, the rich young ruler, ran up to Jesus. In that culture, grown men did not run. It was considered undignified. What it may indicate is that he felt like it was an emergency. It was urgent that he talked to Jesus. He is the rich, young, those of you that are old are envious, aren't we? Ruler. It wouldn't surprise me if he was also good looking so we can hate him even a little more than we already do. No, I'm just kidding. This guy, from a worldly standpoint, has it all. Okay, I got to give you this backstory. It won't take long. In Israel, in Judaism, and you're going to see it in this very story by the reaction of the apostles, it was thought, he's rich. God likes him. God's favoring him. That's why he's rich. Now, you all know that there's some really rich unbelievers, aren't there? The richest people on earth, some of them are anything but believers, right? So it ain't necessarily so. Some people are rich. Abraham, Solomon, David, Joseph of Arimathea, um, Barnabas in, in the book of Acts. They're wealthy, and maybe God blessed them, but not necessarily. We should not look at rich people and go, well, there's a guy who must be living a godly life. Not necessarily. In fact, maybe, probably not. So that's the common belief. Here comes a rich, young, and he's a ruler. He's got it all. This guy must be really holy. We're going to find out he's pretty holy, and he is so far from the kingdom of God, it's crazy. Watch. That's the backstory. Just then, verse 16, a man came up to Jesus and asked, and we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll take our two-minute break. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Parallel passages say, good teacher. He calls Jesus good teacher. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. Who does he mean? It means God. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, let me just warn you, we can, there's a lot of misunderstanding on this passage. We'll, we'll talk about it. Let's read the whole thing. Keep the commandments. Listen, here comes the rich ruler's, uh, rich young ruler's answer. Which ones? He inquired, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, meaning lie, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. In the parallel passage, he says, I've kept all those commandments since my youth. We'll talk about it. Jesus answered, verse 21, if you want to be Perfect, the word can mean perfect, mature, complete. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he immediately sold everything and became a believer. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Let's take our two-minute break, and then we'll take this apart one verse uh, one at a time. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know that's here. That's very important. Those of you on Zoom, hang on. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are in the book of Matthew chapter 19, talking about the rich young ruler, also called the rich young fool. And we'll see why. I want you to look at verse 16. So this is the rich young ruler. He runs up to Jesus. He may even be interrupting, who knows? And he asks, what is the question? What do you mean the question? I mean, he asks absolutely the right question with one word wrong. He comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Is the question sincere? Definitely, I would say. Um, does the man lead a pretty holy life? I bet he does. Is the man sinless? No. Does he say he is? Pretty much, right? All these I've kept since my youth, he says in a parallel account. All of them? Did he hear the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. And you shall not murder. Oh, I'm good on, are you good on murder? Yeah, I'm good on murder. But if you hate your brother or call him a fool or an airhead, and that's literally how it reads in Greek, airhead, head of air, <laughs> then you're just as guilty as if you murdered him. Oh, so we're talking not just what I do, but what I say and even what I think? Whew. Is he sinless now? No. Why doesn't Jesus just tell him the truth? Because you know what the answer to the question is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about faith, not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? A cursory reading of this almost sounds like Jesus has a weird kind of a works, you can earn it, uh, salvation, which is not according to the rest of the Bible and the rest of what he teaches, Paul, Peter, John, James, none of them teach that. Isn't this a little strange? What's going on here? So, but before he answers, so he says, what good thing must I do? What's the goal? Eternal life, salvation. Is that the right goal? Absolutely. But the wrong word is the word do, D-O. I got news for you. The world religions and they are diverse. They're very different from one another. All have one thing in common. They are something that you do, that you do. You live the eightfold path of Buddhism. You um, live the five pillars of Islam. You keep the Ten Commandments. Well, wait, isn't that what he's saying, the Ten Commandments? In a roundabout way. Does Jesus quote all Ten Commandments? No. Oddly, he picks 
all the wrong ones. Are you saying Jesus was wrong? No, of course not. Let's look at it. But before he answers, he says in verse 17, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good, God. He's asking him to consider, it sounds like Bill Clinton in the 90s, what's your definition of the word is? Remember that? What's your definition of the word good? Because you clearly think you're good. And Jesus can look right through him with x-ray vision and know he ain't good. Romans 3 says, wait for it, there is none good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then it even says there's no one who even seeks after God. Oh, no, no, I, he's wrong. Paul's wrong. I sought God. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So if you sought God, that's great. You didn't do it on your own. You would never do it on your own. God drew you. So he also wants the man to consider the word good. And he, in a parallel passage, we find out he called Jesus good teacher. Wait, do you understand what you're saying, calling me good? Because if I'm totally good and only God is good, what does that make me? He wants to get the man thinking, I am, not me, but Jesus, God in human flesh. But he lets that one go. Why do you call me good? Uh, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. Then he says that weird thing in verse 17. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. What? That's the man's mode of operation. That's how he works. He's a legalist. I'll keep this commandment and that commandment and that commandment and this commandment until I do, do it well. Well, wait a minute, you say, if he thinks he's sinless, why is he asking Jesus this question? Who needs Jesus? The man can sense, I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. I'm going to go ask Jesus. If you try to be good enough for God, one of two things will happen. Number one, you will become so conceited about Mr. Holiness that I am that you will look down your nose at all of the sinners at my church who don't live up to my standard. On the other hand, you will live your whole life insecure, wondering, is this good enough? Do I need to do more? What else could I do? I'm going to do everything. I'm going to, I'm going to be a workaholic at my religion in a bad way. I'm going to try to earn it. In the 70s or 80s, there were commercials for Smith Barney, the investment firm, which had John Houseman, which was an older, bald, white guy who was a tremendous actor. And he said, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Do you remember that commercial? I want salvation. The old, I want to earn it. I want to be so good that God owes me. He has to bless me. Forget it. To get the man to realize he's nowhere near God, Jesus has to punt away this man's God. That's what he's trying to do. You have to, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. What Jesus is actually saying is, besides faith in me, there is another way to heaven. 
Just live a perfectly sinless life and never sin in thought, word, or deed ever. And all your motives have to be pure and make sure you do all the things positively that God tells you to do. Go ahead, live the perfect life. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3. He wants to get the man to see where he's at. Okay, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. I forgot to mention one thing. As we're reading this passage, your assignment is count all six of the ways Jesus describes salvation. I'll give you a hint. There's already been a few. Verse 16. What must they do to get eternal life? Do you see it? It's a synonym for salvation. Eternal life, not only in length, but in quality with God in eternity. Second one, there's only one's good, verse 17. If you want to enter life, the guy may say, what do you mean? Enter? I'm already alive. Can't you see I'm alive? He means spiritual life. Notice it's the word enter life, meaning what? You haven't entered yet. If you'd like to enter life, meaning spiritual life, eternal life, be born again, here's what to do. But Jesus is giving him bad advice. Keep the commandments. Why? He's trying to get him to see you can't do it. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it is the absolute highest, loftiest excellence of morality there could be. And in the middle of that sermon, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, be perfect. What, what did he say? Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. You want the standard? Be as good as God. The Jews should have thrown their hands up and went, oh, well, then it's impossible. Right on. You need a savior. Okay. Keep the commandments. I love verse 18. Guy must be a lawyer. Which ones? That's a bad question. If God gives commandments, guess which ones you should keep? Every stinking one of them, right? Which ones? He's like finding loopholes now. He's asking really, what are the important ones? They're all important, right? The Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, Jesus breaks down, and scholars do as well, into four and six. Did you ever notice that's not five and five? The first four have to do with God, your relationship and your responsibility and mine vertically to God. And here they are. Have no other gods. He is God. Have no other gods. Jesus, strangely, doesn't quote this one. And this is the man's problem. He's got another God, doesn't he? His wealth. Number two, make no idols. The man's got a problem with idols. What's his idol? Riches, finances, money, power, fame. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. He's probably good on that one. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Okay? Those four are man's responsibility to God. The other six are man's responsibility when dealing with other human beings. And they are. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Thou shalt not kill. 
bad translation. It's not kill. Then you couldn't pluck some avocados because you're killing something that's alive. Technically, you couldn't eat a burger because somebody killed a cow. Don't get me started. It's thou shalt do no murder. Uh, number six. Number seven. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And he doesn't quote number 10, which is thou shalt not covet. You say, wait, wait, this guy's rich. He's not coveting anybody. Baloney. That's the Greek word, baloney. Look it up. He's coveting everything he wants more. He's already rich. He's probably a workaholic, a high achiever, and he's never satisfied. Why doesn't Jesus quote those commands? He'll get to it. Watch. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which one? He in, which ones? Jesus replied, replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. That means you never have lusted for a woman. Yeah, give me a break. You've never hated somebody or looked down your nose at somebody or called somebody a fool. In the Sermon on the Mount, those are all equated with murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Don't lie. By the way, he's about to lie. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. You say, wait, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is wrong. No, he it's the summary of the last six. The first six, remember when somebody comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, there's two. Vertically, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, that's the first four commandments. The second six, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you don't need to worry about stealing, lying, adultery, having idols, just those two. It's really only two commandments. But he quotes all the easy ones for the guy. Because then, verse 20, all these I've kept, remember the parallel passage says, since my youth. What do I still lack? If I was Jesus, I'd say, hmm, you know that you lack something, don't you? Good. You're on the right track. As a matter of fact, this guy wants an add-on. You know what an add-on is? You go to Wendy's, Burger King, McDonald's, and you go, I'll have a this cheeseburger, whatever. What do they always say? You want fries with that? So you can get the, the meal has, a, has fries and a drink. You know, it's an add-on. You're there for the burger. You want the fries? You want, you want onion rings? It's an add-on. You're buying a new car. Well, we have 17 of those. Which one do you want? Do you have one with tinted glass? I like tinted glass. Oh, that's a little more expensive over here. And the nice, it's an add-on. The guy is saying, I've got the religion thing down cold. I just want an add-on. Tell me what I lack, that one little thing, icing on the cake. The cake's already made. I just want a little icing. I just want an add-on, like a little bit more cowbell in this rock song. I just want one little more thing. Jesus is going to say, you are so lost. It ain't even funny. Watch. You would think you say you're close. No. All these I've kept, which is a lie, but we won't go there. What do I still lack? You really want to know, says Jesus, verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
How many of you are willing to sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor? Oh, you big hypocrites. No, no. You know how many people Jesus tells this to? One. He doesn't say this to anybody else. And he deals with some really wealthy people. And he doesn't say it to them. Abraham was wealthy. I told you, David, Solomon, Bar Barnabas, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus was wealthy. Why these words? Because thou shalt have, first commandment, no other gods before me. And you, sir, he doesn't say it like I am. You, sir, have another God. You got no room for the real God. So to get rid of your real God, it's money, it's wealth, it's all your 11 houses and your five Rolexes and your 19 Rolls Royces camels that are Rolls Royces. They had them. Sell them all. Give everything to the poor or at least be willing to. Uh, next thing, uh, first of all, sell it all, get rid of it. Because your riches that you think you own, they own you. And you think about it day and night. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's where your thoughts are. That's what you think about at night. That's what you dream about. And it's never enough money. As a matter of fact, it's never enough drugs, alcohol, sex, power, fame, PhDs. You just keep needing more. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician and a philosopher and a Christian. And he's the one credited with saying that inside every human being, you've heard this before, is a vacuum, a hole. And I don't mean one that you can see on an x-ray. It's a spiritual hole. And deep down, everybody knows it. And you can try to fill that with alcohol and more and then drugs and then sex and then power and then getting I've got four PhDs now I'm getting my fifth in a few years and why am I still empty because only God fits in there and will satisfy that yearning. This guy doesn't know it. He's asking what do I lack and Jesus is basically saying you lack everything dude. You got to get rid of your God first. Sell everything. I love this. Give it to the poor. Had he been giving to the poor? I Probably not, said Joe. I don't know. And you will have treasure. Oh, wait. I'm going to sell all my treasure and then get treasure back in heaven. Oh, listen. Treasure in heaven is worth a trillion times more than if you owned everything on planet Earth. Why do you say that, Joe? Because it's all going to burn. Yeah. All the gold, all the money, all the houses, all the Rolexes, it's all going to burn. And if it doesn't burn yet, when you die, there's no hearse that has a trailer with all your stuff behind it. And where are you going to keep it? They tried that in Egypt with the pyramids, and they buried the pharaohs with all that gold and diamonds. And guess what? People broke in and stole it. Sell it, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. What kind of treasure? Eternal treasure. Non-losable. Is that a word? Treasure you can't lose. Treasure. Non-losable. I like that. Look it up. It's a word now. And then 
Once you've done that, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. That's not why he was sad. Isn't that ironic, by the way? He's totally rich and he's sad. It's true for a lot of people. Uh, Why is he sad? Because he can't do it. I can't give up that, everything. It's an interesting thing that he doesn't mention, thou shalt have no other gods before me, but he is right now. Sell everything. It's a way of saying, you get rid of your God first, then there'll be room for the real God. Um, Let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. He doesn't mention in the six that deal with people. Did you notice? He leaves out, thou shalt not covet. By the way, this thing about money, we think of it as, yeah, that's a problem for the rich. Me, I'm very poor, so it doesn't matter to me. There's poor people who have the same God and they envy and they're jealous and they'll steal to get it. And it's all about, it's not exclusive to rich people. It can be poor people as well. But he has a superficial understanding of God's commands. He wants to kind of equivocate which commands, all the commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love him completely. The interesting thing is, if he'll do that, sell everything, he will have treasure in heaven. Uh, He will have salvation. By the way, synonyms for salvation. Number one in verse 16, eternal life. Do you see it? In 17, enter life. Jesus in 21, if you want to be perfect, that's salvation. The word can mean mature or complete. Listen. You and I wear the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the sinless perfection of God, even though he knows Joe ain't perfect. He still sees his perfection on you and I. When we get to heaven, there's no more confessing. Did you know that? Because there's no more sin. And if you get to heaven and you say, hey, I just want to say, Lord, to thank you for having me here. I want to apologize. Because I have a whole list. September 3rd, 1996, that thing I did. He's going to go, what, what are you talking about? Jesus paid for that, paid for everything. It's an unbelievable gift. The last thing, follow me. This rich guy looks at Jesus and goes, you don't even have a house. You know how many homes I have? Yeah, have you seen my palace? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? Follow me. Because all that stuff is temporary. My stuff is treasure in heaven. It's permanent. What do you mean by treasure in heaven? The ultimate treasure in heaven is not the gold on the streets. It's the guy up there. And it's not a guy. It's God. It's Christ. Just being there is treasure. But reward as well right? So the mistake we can make is to apply this to everyone. Sell all that you have. It's not true for most people. The second mistake you can make is don't apply this to anybody. There's people this would apply to, right? They have no room for Jesus because their idol, their God is something else. He's got to get rid of your idols, whatever it may be. 
What's my idol, you ask? I'm going to ask some questions. What's the most important thing in your life? What's the thing in your life that if you lost it, you'd say, life is no longer worth living. I have nothing now. I lost everything. That's your God. And it can be good things. And keep in mind, money is a good thing. If you use it for the Lord's kingdom, it's a great thing. Wives are a great thing. But if your wife, if she died, you would say, I couldn't go on living. She's my everything. That's a problem because it's got to be God and then family and then people, friends, then work way down the list, right? Jesus talks to this guy and tells him the shocking truth. You're not even close. You're on the wrong road. Jesus, um, the, the weird thing about Jesus, if you really hear the real Jesus, you will either bow down and follow him or you'll go away sad like this guy, right? I don't want that. Okay, you will never fill the God-shaped vacuum in your life. Jesus smashes his core religious assumptions. Number one, do. What can I do? I said earlier, all the other religions are D-O. Okay, smarty pants, what is Christianity? D-O-N-E. Done. What do you mean? He lived, Jesus lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live. He died the horrible death I deserve for all the sin, shame, the all the broken uh, laws. He did it all. And by faith, I receive him as my Lord and Savior. Savior, he died on the cross for my sins. That's not it. Lord, he is the boss of my life. When he says do A and I want to do B, I'm supposed to do A. Do you always? No, I'm not perfect and neither are you. Jesus smashes the assumption it's something you can do. He smashes the assumption that Christianity is an add-on. I've got a pretty full life. I play tennis. I do golf. I've got my businesses, all my money, my palace, my this, my that, my kids. And I just want to add some fries. I just want a little good feeling on Sunday. Make me feel good with a nice sermon about how good I really am. <laughs> Jesus, can't you do that? Jesus says, no. When you come to me, it's not an add-on. In fact, it's an explosion that might blow up all your preconceived notions. Jesus says, leave the cocoon and the caterpillar body behind so you can be a butterfly and fly. Wait, 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 that's a whole different creature. Exactly. It's not an add-on. You must be born again, redo, start over completely. It's an amazing thing. Jesus shows him he's got another God. You can't see that your definition of good ain't that good. You can't, oh, oh here's a good, right analogy. Tim Keller says this in his sermon on this passage. You ever look at a sewing needle? Look at it. It's perfect. It's all shiny. It's all smooth. What a beautiful thing. Look at the point. Now put it down and put it under a microscope. 
You ever do this with anything that you thought was solid? It's all pocked. It's imperfect. There's all kinds of things. You go, I never saw any of that. God sees everything. So, born again, transformation. His effort, the D-O won't get him. He Get, the, get him there. Um, we wear his righteousness. We already talked about that. Uh, hmm. Jesus only asks this guy, I said earlier, to give it all up. This guy's the only guy that's asked to give it all up. Technically, that's not right. You say, who else was asked to give it all up? Abraham. Abraham finally got a son. And that son was everything to him, Isaac. To the point that God realized, if I'm going to use you, Abraham, I got to know that I'm not in your top 10, and I'm not number two behind Isaac, your son. I got to be number one. So, Abraham, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son whom you love, take him up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. Kill him. Abraham shockingly says, okay, we, I, I'm tempted to go to Genesis 22, but if we do, we'll be here till midnight, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Abraham builds an altar. It's a beautiful story. And raises the knife because God had promised him through your son, you're going to have so many kids, you're not even going to be able to count them. They'll be like the stars in the sky. If you go to this church, we're in this part of Genesis right now, aren't we? Not, not Abraham, but uh, Abraham, but not the sacrifice yet. And he raises the knife to do it. And God says, wait, now I know you do love me the most, more than him. Don't do it. Is that the end of the story? But he did ask him to give up everything. Abraham's the other one. But there's one more. You know who it is? God the Father. Say, what are you talking about? Centuries later, God the Father had to give up the thing he loved the most, his son, Jesus Christ. And guess what? Nobody stopped his hand. Because if, he, if they had stopped that, you and I would still be in our sins. Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him and says, wait. And there, stuck in some thorns, think about it, thorns, is a male sheep, a ram. Wait, you mean like the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Is going to be a substitute for, yes. Abraham sacrifices the ram and names that place in the mountain of the Lord, God provided or god will provide unbelievable okay most of you are asleep now you're still awake say amen. amen yeah it wasn't as good as the other one all right amen those of you on zoom i see somebody walking by okay mm -hmm. the thing you love more than god is killing you silently whether you know it or not and strangely beautifully once you give it to god Sometimes he gives it back to you. Abraham didn't lose Isaac. If he doesn't give it back to you, he gives you something better. Certainly treasure in heaven, right? Why is the man's God money? 
Seems so stupid. Because money will give me power. It'll give me security. People won't push me around. It'll also make you work too hard like a slave to where you're serving your money. In fact, what does Jesus say? You cannot serve, interesting word, God and mammon or money. Wait, serve God, serve money? Oh, no, no, I have the money. It serves me. No, it doesn't. You serve it whether you know it or not. Pretty amazing. He'll have treasure again in heaven. He goes away poor. No, he's still rich. Spiritually, he's broke. Too bad he didn't realize it. Does the man ever come to faith in Christ? We have no record of knowing. Maybe, but I doubt it. He lacked treasure in heaven. Jesus is your treasure in heaven. And this is the coolest thing I saw this week in this passage because somebody else wrote it, not me. His treasure is you. Or he wouldn't have died for you. It's a pretty amazing thing. For the joy set before him, he was willing to endure the cross and its shame, Hebrews says. Pretty, pretty cool thing. His forgiveness, his righteousness, being in God's family, being able to call God your father is worth more than anything. Okay. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Revelation 3.17, the church in Laodicea, they say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And he says, you don't know how poor you are. Um, there's a song, and I always forget the name of it, that talks about the fact that when you become a believer and Jesus gets a hold of you, you start to see everything differently. And things that used to look so beautiful. Look at the diamond necklace she's wearing. I would give anything to have that, says some woman, not me. Um, or that car or that house, or if we only could. And the things of earth start to look strangely dim. dim. It's just kind of like a black and white photo where you go, it's not really, in a sense, it's not really real. The things of God are real, eternal right? Seek first his kingdom and all those other things he'll add them to you. Make his kingdom number one. Uh, okay, let's keep rolling. We have a few minutes. I'm trying to wake you up here. The rich man hears, he goes away sad. Verse 13. Oops, no, I'm on the wrong page, aren't I? Uh, Verse 22. Oh, I skipped a page of notes somewhere. Uh, well, I'm going to do it here. Then I don't know where it went. Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. There we go. You would think the teacher would be prepared. Um, let's see. So the disciples are going to react to this. Uh, verse 25. Oh, sorry, 24. 23. 23. Sorry, I'll get it right. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Impossible? No. More difficult? Yes. Why? More distraction. More temptation to have that be your God, right? Uh, by the way, there's another synonym for, synonym for salvation. 
enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Another synonym, enter the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God. Are you counting? Okay, what's going on here? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Does he mean a sewing needle? Yes. How many of you have heard, how many of you have heard that in Jerusalem, there was the main gate, which would close at night and be locked. But there was a smaller gate called the eye of the needle. That night travelers, you know, missed your flight kind of thing, could come into, but it was so small if you had a camel, especially if it was laden with a bunch of stuff, it would have to get down on its knees and crawl through. It's a pretty picture, and it's not true. <laughs> There's no such gate. And I don't know who made it up, but the best scholars say this is a euphemism, a way of saying something's impossible. Wait, I thought you said it was hard for a rich man to enter. I did. But I mean, he's, Jesus is about to say, and probably next week he's going to say it, that it's impossible for anybody to be saved, especially the way that guy wanted to be saved. Watch. And we're out of time. Yes, I know. Uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, meaning a big camel, eye of a needle. Tough? Impossible. No way, right? When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, who then can be saved? Do you see what I said to you earlier? Rich people, God loves that guy. God is approving of that guy. That's why he's rich. Not necessarily. In fact, probably not. They're shocked. This guy's not saved? Jesus, you know, he's wealthy. Yes, I know, Peter. He's out. Well, who then can be saved? See that question? We're going to leave it right there and answer it next week. Same channel. That way you have to come back to hear the answer. Don't be reading. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's go ahead and pray and, and thank God for our time together, shall we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just knocked out by this uh, lesson, Father. First of all, if we're married, help us to do everything in our power to stay married, to make it work, to try harder, to be a marriage where it's not two people, but three. The husband, the wife, and God as their master. The absolute ideal marriage. Help us to uh, love our wives. Help us to love our husbands. Those of us that are women, not me, but some. We pray that you would uh, help us understand that we are to be like children, teachable, humble, uh, aware of our dependence. And then, Father, as we look at this rich, young ruler, help us to not emulate that. There's nothing we can do to e get eternal life. It is about faith in you and your son, Jesus. We're so thankful we have the faith. As a matter of fact, your word, we'll look at it next week, says that the faith we have is a gift. What an amazing thing. Help us to look at our possessions with a new eye this week, this year, the rest of our lives, God. Help us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt it. 
Thank you for the good gifts you give, God. We love you. We owe you everything. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone before you leave that you don't know. It's important. And thank you for watching on Zoom. We'll see you next time. God bless.